All right, five minutes passed. So for the sake of time, let's, uh, let's get into it. It's good to be back with you all this morning. And Lord willing, we'll finish up our in-depth look at the book of Ruth today. I have really enjoyed digging into this book, and hopefully you have as well. There's so much richness in it for us. Just to orient you, since it's been a while, or if you're, you're new to this, We've learned about an Israelite family so far that walks away from God's promises and God's people and goes and lives with the enemy in a time of hardship and how that ends in disaster for them. Then we learned about an unusually faithful Moabite widow who clings to her mother-in-law and comes back to become a part of the people of God and how she demonstrates the kind of work ethic and faithfulness that we are called to. We've learned about what actual Christian charity, biblical charity looks like, and how this man named Boaz, who's a pillar of the community, exercises that for Ruth and for Naomi. And then in our most recent installment, we saw this setup for where everything that we were led to expect was complete sexual selfishness and exploitation, and instead, it's turned into this beautiful picture of selflessness and God's provision. But we were left with a cliffhanger because what Ruth asked Boaz to do, he was not able to because there was another guy in front of him in line in terms of family ties. And so we're left with a cliffhanger. Boaz says that he's going to take care of it, and he leaves Ruth and Naomi with an enormous pledge as a guarantee that he's going to do that, and we're left waiting. So today we're going to look at a bunch of themes around children, inheritance, land, putting things in the right order before God. We're going to look at themes around sexual selfishness, even some tying into some challenging some thoughts about economics and how that ties into more important themes of God's goodness and look at the big picture of the book of Ruth. Um, So that's what we all have in store for us today. So let's open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, we are again grateful to be called your children and to be given your word to study, uh, to savor. I pray that you would keep us from error, keep me from error today, and help me to expound your word and help us to hear it and to learn to be more like your son through it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to handle this in two parts. So the first part, we're going to read the first 12 verses of Ruth chapter 4, and then I'll talk about that, and then towards the end, we'll we'll cover the rest of chapter 4. Is there a a paper you can read from? Sorry, I don't. I, I have a copy in Hebrew in my bag, but... Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, Joe Schmo, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is none besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, um, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the matter of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So that's something. Boaz goes straight up to the city gate, and he gets, some, he gets a meeting going. Right? There's a bunch of questions in here, so we're going we're gonna to look briefly at this, and we're going to get a whole bunch of questions, and then we're going to go get some context to be able to answer all of those questions, and then we'll come back and we'll see how this all fits together. But this all starts at the city gates. Again, city gates are the place where you control access to a city, and the people who control access to the city are the elders. They decide who comes in and who can't come in just like with the church. So that's why they sit. And because that's where the elders sit, that's where business is transacted. Because there's no king in Israel. There is no county clerk that you're going to go down and he's got a record of deeds. So everything in this society is the oral tradition of the elders, of you were all there when I gave X amount of silver for this. You can't back out now because we... We recorded that in front of the elders. So that's what's happening here. This is a, Boaz is an elder, you can tell, because he sits down. He takes his place at the city gates. And when this guy comes by, he's like, yo, right here. The guy sits down. And then 10 elders come by. Hey, sit down here. And they do it. So he's getting a business meeting going, and he's going to transact some business. And we're going to look at the nature of that. But we got a bunch of questions around what's going on. For one thing, you probably noticed, I didn't read this chapter quite the way you see it in your ESV. 
The SV says, he says, turn aside, friend. That's not what the Hebrew says. Hebrew is a lot more fun than that. He says, turn aside, Poloni Almoni. We have words like so-and-so or um, hodgepodge, right, or Joe Schmo. These are all terms that we use to refer. The, the words themselves don't really mean anything, but they point to something generic. In Hebrew, Polonia and Almoni mean just a certain thing that I'm not going to name. And we see it used throughout in a couple other places in the Bible where it'll refer to uh, Polonia Almoni as a, as a place. So it'll say, like, the king of Assyria arranged to go to such and such a place. And, and, that's, and your Bible translates it. Your ESV will translate that correctly. They'll say such and such a place because it's not important. It's just important that there was a specific place. So Boaz is an elder. He knows the guy's name. Why isn't this guy's name given? Our narrator is very precise, so he gives the names of everybody else in this story, but here he explicitly doesn't say friend. He uses a generic term to say, there was a specific guy, but I won't give you his name. Hmm. Interesting. Second thing, what's being transacted here? Last we heard, Naomi and Ruth are broke, right? Naomi says, I came back empty, and they've been living like paupers. So how do they now have a field to sell, and how is Boaz the one who can sell it? That doesn't make any sense. What's going on here? What's this redemption? First, he's talking about buying something, and then he says, if you will redeem it. Well, what's this redemption talking about? And what's more, what does Ruth have to do with it? Why does, how does Boaz get to say this is some kind of a package deal, right? All of this, all these, all these questions are, are worthy, of, worthy of our attention. And last of all, kind of weirdly, what's up, with, what's up with the sandal business, right? Why does the guy back out and what's up with the sandal? Why, why are we talking about sandals here? So, by way of context, we're going to dig into all this, but one of the things I'm going to try to come back to a couple times is the importance of keeping things in the right order. God has created an order to things of what things serve what other things. What things are of greater importance? In Hebrew, the word for glory is, means heavy, kabod. And, and so there's this sense of there are things that are of greater weight. God is of ultimate weight, right? Ultimate glory and, and other things. And a lot of idolatry, most idolatry, is getting things out of order. You take a good thing and you put it over a more important thing, right? A guy can work really hard to provide for his family and not disciple them. Working is good, providing is good, but family, his children are more important. A woman can wear herself out making a home that's beautiful and clean at the expense of doing hospitality. Clean, beautiful homes are wonderful, a great blessing, but 
They are to serve something of greater importance. So we're going to look at, this is, this is going to be a key theme, because this story hinges on somebody who understands the right ordering of things, and the true worth of things, and the mind of God with regard to these matters, and someone who does not. Now land is one of the things that God has created. And he gives us a hint as to the relation of land to people, in that he creates land first. Right? First he creates creation, and then he creates man, last of all, to rule over creation. A hint to the divine ordering of things. And no one can deny that the ownership of land is extremely important. It's been acknowledged so from ancient times. It was very important in, in Greek and Roman society. It's been very important in our society through most of our history. The, you, you couldn't even vote in, a lot of the, in all of the original colonies unless you owned land. The last state to abolish this requirement uh, was in 1856. So as late as 1856, you had to own land to vote in North Carolina. So it's understood that owning land is, is very important. Right? Land is, in an agrarian society is the primary means of producing wealth. So Delmar from, no, oh brother, where art thou said, you ain't no kind of man, you ain't got land. That proves it. It does. It's not wrong. It's a very, very important principle in what you'll see in the, in the biblical record. But people are more important than land. And we're going we're gonna to get into that. So, in ancient Israel, who did the land belong to? Belonged to God. And God was the one who gave it. He gives it originally to Abraham. When he says, I will multiply, this is in Genesis 26, 4, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and will give to your seed all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise of the seed, right, which is pointing to the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, is tied to the promise of the land. These two are linked and we'll see why they're linked but then he goes and actually fulfills it. So in the last part of Judges, there's six chapters of Judges that are nothing but who gets what. And all those sections end with something that goes like, this is the inheritance of the people of, name the tribe, according to their clans. Their inheritance from Yahweh. God is giving his people this land. And that all sounds pretty normal to us to this point, but then something unusual comes in, this idea of redemption. So from Leviticus 25, 23 to 28, God says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. 
if a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem him, redeem it, let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. So that's an unusual concept to our ears, is they, did, they were not allowed to perpetually sell the land because the land belonged to God. It was forbidden. They could sell houses in walled cities, and they could sell a lot of other movable goods, livestock, perpetually. But they couldn't sell the land. The land went back to them because God had given it to them. And it says something about God and his attitude towards his people and how that is different than the way we think about things. But this is one of these things that God has built into the order of, to remind us of the proper ordering of things. It's like the tithe. If the tithe is not for us, or it's not for God, it's for us. It's for our benefit. We have this constant reminder, my increase belongs to God. It's from God, it belongs to God. And we have this this ritual of the land is not mine. The land is God's and he gave it to his people. And this idea of redemption is very, very important uh, to God. And he built these two mechanisms in around to restore it. He built in redemption and jubilee. We're mostly going to talk about redemption. Jubilee is worthy of, worthy of our interest. And God took this very seriously in the time of the prophets, he condemns those who are creating a monopoly on the land, who are violating his law in this regard. In Isaiah, he says, Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Um, in Micah 2, he talks about those who covet fields and seize them and oppress a man and his inheritance. But it wasn't just the land that you see this redemption for. Leviticus 25, the very next section. Again, we talk about the land. The very next section is the same thing for people. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it because it's very similar language. But it's all the same thing of if you're poor and you're sold, you have to sell yourself into slavery, you can redeem your, your brother is supposed to redeem you. If you get wealthy, you can redeem yourself. And in the year of Jubilee, you're released. So these things are in parallel. The land and the people are in parallel. And that's not an accident because the land, remember, was tied to the promise, the promised seed of the woman. The two are tied together because one is a picture of the other. The land is this physical picture of a spiritual reality. We have seed, the land has seed that grows crops. People have seed that grows crops, right? Right? We, you, you put the seed of the, the land is physical fruit. And people, the, same, the, the word seed is the same one that's used of the seed that you sow in the ground and the seed that is your generation's. It's the same word in Hebrew, and it is referring to people. 
right? Because we are owned by God. God gives us the land, and the land serves us. And we are owned by God, and we serve God, and the crop that we produce, in Malachi 2.15, what was the one God seeking? Godly seed. So these pictures are here for our benefit. And this idea of redemption, a redeemer, a goel, is someone who has this right or obligation to bring something back for someone else that they can't get for themselves. So he was provided this means of redeeming the land and redeeming people. But what do you do if you're dead? What if you don't have an heir to, to inherit your land or to redeem because you died without an heir? And this is an important point for us to consider because we don't take the idea of children and inheritance seriously enough today because we're mostly surrounded by hedonism, people who don't care who controls the world when they're gone as long as they get to control it now. Historically, you had ancient kings and they wanted to exert influence, so they would name a city or build a giant, like build a mountain, right? So that they would continue to have this presence in the world after they were gone. Today, you can do it by naming a university after yourself, right? Try to live on through that. Or the transhumanists really creepily are trying to, you know, like put their brain in a jar or meld it with computers so they can live forever. But everybody seems to have this sense that we were given perpetual stewardship of the earth and that that being interrupted is somehow not okay because of the fall. And they're not wrong. But the right way to do it is the way that God has ordained, which is you live on through others. Our, uh, our pithy pastor said, uh, those who have hope in the future put a part of themselves into it. And when you have children, when you invest your life in other people, you are putting the mission of filling the world with image bearers who are serving God, you're putting that mission ahead of your own wealth and interests and agenda and, and reputation. And those who don't, so they can build a pyramid or a mod, the modern equivalent, are not. So we, we, need to, we need to wrestle with these things. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into that any more, in any more detail. But the ancients understood the importance of having an heir and being tied into the promise of the seed that was to come. But what if you died without one? This is where we get to a real fun topic, which is leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was God's mechanism for providing an heir for those who did not have one. It comes from the Latin word that refers to your husband's brother. So it's a little more specific than our idea of a brother-in-law. Levir, that's where we get the, the term. And God introduces it in this way. He says in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, 
If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not marry, be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off of his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. But uh, that sounds kind of weird, right? A little creepy, maybe? Going to marry somebody just because they're a relative in need that needs an heir? Shouldn't I just be marrying for, for lo love, to love? Right? <laughs> this is hard for us to get our heads around because of how saturated we are in individualism. And the most sacred idol of all in, in our modern individualistic culture is our sexuality. That's why this sounds weird to us. Because of all the things that we think we own that are ours to play with, that nobody else can tell us what to do with, our sexuality is at the core of that. If this had said her brother, her, her husband's brother should give her X amount of money, we'd be like, eh, yeah, man, whatever, yeah. But then you're like, what? You didn't tell me to do that. But that's because we don't understand the order of things. And we don't understand what God says in 1 Corinthians 6. 19 through 20, when he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our sexuality does not belong to us. Weird concept, though it's very true. It belongs to our spouse. We know that from the Bible. But we don't, other things we don't think about is we, it belongs, in a sense, to our ancestors to give them descendants. It belongs to our posterity to give them existence. It belongs to God because he's seeking a godly seed. And our failure to understand this leads us in a lot of different weird directions. God could have made romance like taking out the garbage or changing a dirty diaper, something that you do because you have to for the love of someone else. But he didn't. He instead makes it this thing that's glorious and a great blessing to us. And because of that, in a bizarre twist, we assume that it's ours and for us. And so we end up in these situations. But it's not about us. And these people understood that better than we do. So this does not, did not sound as weird to them as it does to us. As a brief sidebar, I think also this would 
concept would make marriage much more of a family thing, right? And in many ways, marriage is in the same way, very individual. But you'd imagine if this was your expectation, like, bro, you're going you're gonna to marry her? Let's talk about this. <laughs> because you would view your marriage as not just for you. You'd view it rightly as something that would serve the people of God, would serve your family, and it would serve ultimately God. And that's why you should, look, you should think about this when you're looking for a potential spouse. If you're thinking about just what this person is going to do for you and not what it's going to do for your children, for your family, for the church that you'll be a part of, then you're probably thinking about it wrong. It's getting back to leverant marriage. Right? It is creepy if it's selfish, but it wasn't intended to be that way. And you see examples like in Leviticus where the same type of relationship outside of this context is actually condemned. But it all hinges on the importance of an heir. That was the whole point, was making sure that a man's name was not cut off from the people of God and from this promise. And if you don't understand that, then you, you miss the point, because the whole point of leveret marriage is producing an heir. Bizarrely, the Jews still actually, pract- observant Jews practice this today. They never practice leveret marriage because they don't have a land, so the point of an heir is gone. But in the weird case where your brother dies childless, they will get together, counsel, and do a thing with the sandal, and they spit on the ground because spitting in the face is a little weird. But they they still practice this because they don't get the point either. A little bit about the sandal because the sandal is just weird. We have today symbols of ownership like, if you buy a house or a car, what's the last thing that the realtor or the car salesman hands you, right? Hands you the keys. Now, if you steal my keys and make a copy, you can get into my house. It doesn't mean you own my house, but these are symbols of my ownership of my home and of my car. The most basic thing that you can do with land is walk on it. Anybody can walk on their land. And so the thing you need to do that is a sandal. Sandal is an obvious symbol of ownership. So that's what that's the idea with the sandal, right? The guy has the sandal, has the land. And so when she's pulling off his sandal, she's saying, you are trying to take all the land for yourself. So may Yahweh give you none of the land. Because that's why. We think about why you, would not, why you would not perform this duty. You didn't perform the duty. We're like, well, I mean, if she's really ugly or something. No, 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 that's not why. The reason why you wouldn't perform the duty of a Leverite is because you're like, all the more for me. Remember, there's only so much land. They're not making any more of it. And it's granted in perpetuity. And if he dies with no heir, who gets it? You do. You and your heirs get it. 
So by not raising up an offspring for your brother, you're having an all the more for me attitude, and that's what's being condemned in this ceremony of humiliation. It's about selfishness. All right. So we talked about land, inheritance, heirs, leveret, marriage, all these principles, what God was doing and what he's setting out here. Now back to the narrative. Let's answer all those questions, burning questions we had. What's being transacted? Now that what we know about the land, Naomi is not selling the land. Almost certainly Elimelech sold everything when he left for Moab. So he would have sold the right to use the land to someone. And that right is still in the possession of somebody. It doesn't matter who. That's not important to the narrative. But somebody is using Elimelech's field that he was given by God that was his inheritance, his promise of being part of the seed, the, the line that would bring the seed of the woman into the world. He sold the use of that to somebody, and now he's gone. But that land belongs to the, the clan, to the family. And Naomi, as his heir, has the right to redeem it, which doesn't do her any good because she didn't have any money. But if she did have money, she could have redeemed it. So what's going on is she is surrendering. She's going to die. She has no heir. And the right of redemption will revert, per God's law, to the next of kin, which is this Joe Schmo character. So he's going to get it anyway. This is Naomi surrendering her right of redemption. And Boaz and, and the elders are just sort of settling up Naomi's estate in advance because she's obviously never going to be able to redeem it. Somebody should redeem it for the clan. And so Boaz is saying, why don't you redeem it? Right? You're the one who's supposed to. God says, redeem the land, redeem the land. And I love the way Boaz sets it up. So, so disarming. You read the way he says it. It's very subtle. It's like, you know, I was just thinking, and I should uncover your ear about this matter. It's a Hebrew idiom. This thing is, needs to be taken care of. So I thought I would say, hey, why don't you buy it in front of all these people? And this guy, generous old Poloni Almoni, says, by golly, I will. And then Boaz's shrewd character, he has the, his, his Columbo moment, right? It's like, just one more thing. And in the same way, right, he's revealing, he drops the fine print and reveals what this guy was all about. When he, he talks about, then he says, bringing in Ruth into the equation, he's tying this to the whole point of redemption, which was making sure that no one was removed from the promise. And there's an interesting side note. I'll, I'll try to be brief. You got to understand something about Hebrew. In Hebrew, the Jews considered the, the consonantal text of the scrolls that they would read from to be sacred. So even if there seemed to be a scribal error in them, traditionally they would copy it as exactly as they could, even if they thought there was an error, or even if they didn't want to. And then they would make notes in the margin saying, read it this way. 
And so there's two things in a Hebrew text. You have the kere, which is what is read, and the ketiv, which is what is written. The ketiv is, in a sense, older, and the kere is what you read. And there's humorous things around that, like um, sometimes it's just them correcting what they think was a scribal copying error, and other times they're boulderizing the text. So like when God afflicts uh, the men of Ashdod and the Egyptians with tumors, I think is how you're also boulderized ESV translates it. It's, it's actually very vulgar. It's hemorrhoids. And it's like, but they were, re- and, the, and the word used in Hebrew is, was considered even more improper. And they had to read this in public. So they're like, don't read that. Read this other thing instead. And they do that to this day. So you got to understand there's these two things. The, kati- the kere of this text there's not a lot of these differences, but the carry of this text is what I read where he says, in the day you get the field, you get Ruth. The Ketiv says, in the day that you, that you acquire the field, I will acquire Ruth to raise up an heir. Now, either way, whether you go with the carry or whether you go with the Ketiv, the point is the same, that there was a requirement and an expectation that there be an heir that would inherit this property that was being redeemed for the family and that that heir would come not from Boaz or from this other guy, but that he would be coming from Ruth and from the line of Elimelech. I just think that if you go with the Ketiv, it just makes Boaz seem like that much more of a baller that he says, you may get the land, but I will be marrying this girl and raising up an heir who will inherit it. So you won't be keeping it either way. And this is the reason why this guy drops out. He, he backs out of the running and demonstrates that the only thing that he was going after was the land. And he was probably excited, right? Elimelech is dead. Malon and Kilion, they're dead. I'm going to get a thing that you can only get this way, which is a perpetual deed to a piece of land in the nation of Israel. The only way you can get more of this stuff is this way, and I'm about to, I'm about to secure some of it. He only saw the land. He didn't see what the land was pointing to or what was more important. He valued that over what Boaz saw, which was restoring a family to the people of God. So he pulls his sandal off. And then the narrator says, that's how you conducted a transaction, right? Remember what I said about the keys. But that detail is not there for an ac- on accident. He is condemning himself by refusing. He didn't have to be a leveret. He wasn't the brother-in-law. So he wasn't, by the letter of the law, he was off the hook. But he is not demonstrating the spirit in which God gave these commandments by valuing his own wealth and security over the restoration of someone to the people of God. And so in pulling off his sandal, he doesn't even realize it, but he's condemning himself in the spirit of that text. And now we know why his name wasn't given. Because what was he all about? My inheritance, 
my security, my family, my wealth, right? That was his interests. And so the narrator explicitly leaves him out. We don't know who he is. And anonymity in the Bible is almost always synonymous with judgment because God knows the names of those who are his. We don't know this guy's name. He's just Joe Schmo. And in the same way that Orpah was a foil for Ruth's good character, this Yahoo is a foil for Boaz because the two of them see the, th- the thing oppositely. All right. So where, what does this have to do with us, right? What's the, uh, what's the tie-in? Well, go back a little bit. So then Boaz, he follows through, right? He gets witnesses. He's going to buy the land for Naomi, marry Ruth, and the heir, their son, will inherit all of this. And he gets witnesses. Very important. He's sealing the deal in a way he can't back out with all these witnesses. And the witnesses respond. He, it, it, Hebrew is so beautifully terse, just one word. So he's like, witnesses? And they all say, Adim. Witnesses? Witnesses. Right? We are witnesses. And then they go on to bless him. And they say, may Yahweh make this woman like Rachel and Leah, um, make your house like Perez. Who, this, is, this is significant, because who, who was, Rachel and Leah are pretty obvious, who was Perez? Father of Tamar. Well, yes, the Perez they're referring to is the one born by Tamar, right? So he was the product of a, kind of a, tricked Leveret marriage, and he's the offspring of Judah and a foreign woman, Tamar, similarities to Ruth. He's the offspring of an older man and a younger woman, similar Boaz and Ruth. He's one of the most significant clans in Judah, and six generations back, he's Boaz's ancestor. So they're saying, you have done well, and may this be as great a blessing as that other time well-known in our history when something very similar to this, very similar situation. May God bless this the same way. And they're praising Boaz. They recognize that he's doing the right thing, that he has the right attitude towards these matters, and they're praising him for it, which is a lesson for us. You know, if all you can do is observe those who are doing God's will and praise them for it, don't just golf clap in your heart. Um, So God says the, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. He also says don't rejoice when you see them stumble. How do, you, how do you weigh those two? God uses all things. He works all things together for good for us. So he'll use the sinfulness of others to drop wealth into our laps. But at the same time, if we rejoice when we see that happen, he is displeased. Because that's his prerogative, not ours. We're to have the mind of God, and we see that in Boaz. Do we have a every man for themselves, you know, Darwinist economic attitude where we see the misfortunes of others as a buying opportunity? 
Or are we more focused on restoring others to the people of God? And this is not, obviously the, the land is of less importance. So it's a picture of something even more important, which is, do we have this same attitude when it comes to spiritual matters? When we see other people, when we, do we mourn the destruction of the wicked or do we have a all the more for me mindset? We have to repent of any kind of an attitude of all the more for me because that is not the God that we serve. That's not the example that we have to follow. We're to pray for our enemies and to seek their good, which is very hard. But if you think about it, leveret marriage, this picture of the leveret, even though we don't have a land and a promise tied to a land today, so the need for an heir is gone, and so we don't practice this anymore. But this picture is for our good, because a leveret is a brother who comes and does something for a dead man that that man cannot do for himself. Christ is described as our older brother. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he gave up everything he had. He needed nothing. And he came to take on our mortal frame so that we could inherit everything with him. And then he turns to us and says, go and do likewise. So we are to be, we are to, by God's grace, to strive to be Boaz and not Joe Schmo, Poloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so. Now the happy ending, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron, Ram, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon. Nashon, Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So God blesses their union, which was not guaranteed. Remember, Ruth didn't have a child with, by Malon. God is the one who opens the womb, and so he puts his seal of divine blessing on everything that has been happening in faith to this point by answering them with their prayers with a child. And now the happy ending for Naomi. Mara, the one Naomi pleasant, who became empty and bitter. Remember, she said, call me Mara, I'm bitter, and I've come back empty. Now the women are back, the same women she said that to, and they're rejoicing with her. And she has a son. Remember early on I said there's this tear-jerker moment 
in verse one through five at the bottom of her destitution where she's left without her husband and without her two little boys. Same word is used here, Yelet. She has a boy. And that wasn't enough. She has a daughter-in-law who is worth more than seven sons. And I, I don't know how to let that sink in, that a daughter in this day and age could be worth more than seven sons is like an uncalculable compliment to Ruth's character. So everyone sees Ruth's character and her value uh, to Naomi. And Naomi, who had no hope, who had no descendant, no heir, no man, no wealth, no nothing, has a child and is back in the people of God by God's gracious hand. And he's done this by, at the same time, grafting in this Moabite, this enemy of God. And so that, the, in a sense, the break is more strong and beautiful, or the, the, the repair is more strong and beautiful than the break. Why is his name Obed? Obed means worker, servant, right? He takes after his parents. He's a worker. He's a servant of God. And this, type, this brings us to the ultimate happy ending which is the whole point of all of this, we thought to this point was restoring Naomi to the people of God and restoring her family. And while he's doing this, God is grafting in these three Gentile women that we hear of, Tamar, Rahab, and now Ruth. And as he's grafting them in and restoring Naomi's family, to the people of God and bringing them back into the fold, he also is delivering to Israel what it needs, which is a king. King David, who is the one who has promised to receive the ultimate king, who lives out all of this. He is the one who is the son who comes and takes on. He does, he's the opposite of Elimelech, right? Elimelech flees under judgment. Jesus, who was under no judgment himself, God's son, comes and takes on our suffering to save us from our sin. He gives up his power and glory and wealth in order to redeem the lost. And he does all of this so that his enemies... Those who were his enemies, who hated him, can become his friends and co-heirs of the kingdom with him. And then he bids us to be his disciples and to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord God, your Faithfulness is everlasting, and your glory reaches to the skies. As we come to the close of this narrative, we thank you for these examples that you have recorded for our benefit. We thank you for the faithfulness of Ruth and the faithfulness of Boaz and the way that they understood your word and you gave them your spirit to to do right in the midst of very difficult circumstances. We thank you also for 
the descendant, the ultimate king that you brought into the world through them for your son, our perfect redeemer, and for his perfect example and perfect sacrifice. We pray that you would help us to learn from this narrative, that we would see clearly where we are valuing the things of earth above the things of heaven, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage our hearts as we seek to be like Christ, and that you would give us the grace by your Holy Spirit uh, to see as you see and to order our lives in accordance with what you've revealed of yourself. And we ask this all in the strong name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.